It uh, seems like it's going to happen that the fears of a series going through a book, when you do four chapters out of five, you got to do, unless the Lord takes me in Spokane during this week, you're going to be facing 1 Peter 5 next Sunday. Or we could go all postmodern in this and just leave you hanging, chapter 4. So we're in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your mercies to us. We are grateful for the lives we've been given. We're grateful for our circumstance, Lord, but we would like to learn more about being the Christians we can be in spite of awful circumstances. And Lord, as Americans, we seem to fear that most of all. Be merciful to us in our understanding. In your son's name, amen. Now, in case you haven't picked up in 1 Peter, there's a certain degree of assessment of a life under persecution. Some of the passages today are um, pointed very straightly at that. You know, in a world where persecution was the big P persecution, it wasn't, oh, a a social professor graded you down for saying something Christian on an exam. Or you were told you couldn't talk about Jesus and Boy Scouts or something like that where we're told that some, any kind of freedom limitation in a free society we feel is persecution but this was a time where those rights didn't exist and they just killed you. Now, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. Now, we ran across that earlier in the book. Back in chapter, uh, what was it, chapter 2? Let's see, yeah, chapter 2. Um, it talked about putting up with the emperor or his governors, putting up with your really unkind masters. And then he said, at the end of chapter 2, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So Peter's on this topic, and Peter's on this topic in terms of Jesus Christ. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. Now, it's an interesting turn of uh, phrase. It's uh, an arming. Because you're going to need that. Because there's going to be an attack on you. Not just the attack of suffering in the flesh. But all the temptations of how un- just not right. We were talking about with the unrighteous a master who is uh, violating your rights and punishing you unjustly. What do you want to do? You want to take it you know, to law courts or something like that. Sue the bastard. But the Christian is supposed to take it patiently. Because if he takes it patiently, he has God's approval. And that is a hard thing to comprehend. We have to arm ourselves against some of our own notions about what your right is in this matter. Because we're called not only to be right, but to be humble in being right. This is something we, we, we discussed some in a previous 
a Sunday, a couple Sundays ago, about the nature of Christ's humility. Christ's humility was not him not thinking he was great as the next guy. In fact, Jesus Christ thought he was greater than all of us. He thought he was greater than you. He thought he was greater than me. He thought he was greater than everybody combined. Add up every human being on the planet. Jesus Christ thought wasn't just greater than they. He thought he was greater than they. And that's the hard thing that we have to get over. And some of our armament, some of our armament has to be getting past the temptation that once you think you're greater than, and as Christians, whether or not you're a greater person, you know you are more right than the average Philistine. Being more right, you've got a temptation that you have to arm yourself against. Now here's the, here's the thing that you have to realize is going on when you are suffering like Christ suffered and you have to be armed against both the pain you're going to receive and the attitudes of rebellion you have in it. It says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now I don't think this is a... Now you, you may disagree with me. I think that's assumed. But I don't think this is dealing with if you go, if you are beaten by the Romans or your master, you have now stepped into a second Christian experience in which you no longer can sin. I think this is a parenthetical between the bolded areas there. Arm yourselves with the same thought so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. He's parenthetically putting in there, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is either when you have suffered to, his, to the point where Christ did and died, you're, you're, look on the bright side um, that if you die for the faith you're past the sinful circumstance, you've been set free from sin but actually I think he's probably dealing with the nature of this Christian suffering it is a judgment on you or it may be better to say a judgment of you you ever what's your view, what, what's the standard verse that every non-Christian goes off to school to get trained to use? Judge not lest you be judged. Right? Because they hate that. They really have strong ethical feelings about judging. And we, carried along by their mood, we well, no, 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 we're not going to judge. Don't worry, we don't judge. Well, part of the problem is we all think that judgment is universally negative. Because we're, we're like that. I mean, we say, oh, I'm judging. Not ver that, that the judger is in a negative state. That's one question. But the, that if you're judging someone, you're, of course, thinking bad things of them. Parents get into this a bit, not in judgment, but they get into this problem of presuming that if they have authority, they should always say no. Right? Can I have a Coke? No. It's simple, right? I'm in charge. He wants it. The only way to prove I'm in charge is to tell him not. Because he wants it and we'll see if he obeys. But you're in charge. You can say yes or not. Why not say yes? Well, I want to feel like I'm in charge, so I'm going to say no. We sometimes look on the negative of certain words, like authority, are expressed in the negative to us emotionally. But this judgment... This thing that is falling on you 
is measuring you. Because if you have suffered, you've ceased from sin. Because I think what he says next, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. If there was ever a statement of the distinction between sin and righteousness, that's it. You no longer live by human passions. Jesus Christ, when he was praying in the garden, his human passions did not want to do this. If there's any way this cup can pass from me. But then he says at the end, but not my will but thine be done. You have passions. You have pain responses. Um, I'm 61. My wife and I laid tile yesterday. I'm barely lucid at this point from the drugs I've taken. I hurt. Oh, it hurt God at getting up this morning. And, but for the sake of the kingdom, I got up and prepared a sermon. We don't like pain in America. People have opioid problems. People like to medicate all sorts of ways. In antiquity, they did with drugs and booze and the like, and we do with drugs and booze and the like. We don't like pain. You have a very strong aversion to it. So if you have been taught something by Christ, that when we're stepping into this judgment of the persecution of the Christians, where torture is an option, where painful death is an option, when you've suffered in the flesh, you've laid aside what motivates you the most in this life. What motivates us most in this life, and has motivated every man and woman in history, is the pains and pleasures of life. If I arm myself with this thought about Christ, that this judgment of each of us is going to be in terms of whether we live by our passions or we live by the will of God. You have to ask yourself the question. And we all did in high school, you know, if a persecutor, would you, would you deny Jesus Christ if you were going to be tortured or something like that. Everybody likes to pretend this thought experiment. But do you think denial of Jesus Christ under torture is bad? I think it's bad. I don't know about you, but if you deny me before man, I will deny you before the Father. Um, you might even say that Peter had some experience with this. Three times he denied the Lord. Three times just out of fear. Not that anybody was going to arrest him, but that something bad was going to happen. Weren't you with this guy? No, I never knew the man. He even cursed to prove it at one point. This is the guy writing this book. He's been down this road. He has violated the standard. But for the rest of the time in the flesh, you are supposed to arm yourselves with this thought that my task is to not live by my passions and to live by the will of God. <coughs> How much of your bad decision making is rooted in making the wrong decision there? Oh, look at the next verse. Let the time that is past suffice 
for doing what the Gentiles like to do. Living in, and we got a bunch of positive pleasures here, licentiousness. For those of you who are not around Bible language much, that means having a license to do stuff. You can always tell when talking to someone about having a beer, yeah, how old are you? 19. They, they wish they had the license. Two more years. I want the license. When can I smoke? 18. Okay, I can smoke. We want licenses. If we can find some kind of privilege, and in Christ we find every kind of privilege because we're no longer under the law, but problem is sin shall have no dominion over you because you're not under law, you're under grace. So consequently, you're given a license in Christ and you're supposed to always pick the not licentious. Not the passions, not the drunkenness, not the revels, not the carousing, and not the lawless idolatry. And if you only could say to yourself, I really don't have any interest in idolatry, and you only pick up the last one, yeah, I'm with you there, Peter. None of this idolatry for me. There aren't any idols around here. But there's lots of licentiousness, passion, drunkenness, reveling, and carousing. He is adding up what people do in this life. They take, they take pains and avoidance of pain, because that matters to you. You choose your pleasures and you try to stockpile as many of those pleasurable experiences as you can. This is the problem, and I, I don't want to pick on the current generation, but I'm going to. It's why they never give you a straight answer about whether they're coming when you've invited them to something, because they don't know because their phone is there, they don't know if one of their other friends is going to call them with a better offer for the same time frame. Because, dear heavens, I can't miss the most pleasurable circumstance in a situation. Because if your situation you invited them to was pleasurable, but there was a three times the pleasure at this other party that they missed because they gave their word to you, that's just not right. I should have the most pleasure I can have. Well, let the time that has passed suffice for that. That's how Gentiles are. Have you had enough of that? If you haven't had enough for that, this is what the judgment is, folks. This is what is being decided. Remember, judgment is not deciding that you're bad. It's deciding whether you are bad or good. And it's deciding that you're bad. That's the tra That's why people don't like the judgment. People don't like the judgment. When it says in the early part of Romans, where is that Romans? It's in here, New Testament. First, somewhere, chapter two. Speaking of the Gentiles, they show that what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse, or perhaps excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. You see that? Jesus Christ is ready to give you a positive assessment and a negative assessment. Accuse or excuse. Why do you not like judgment? Because I kind of figure I'm going to flunk this test. 
That's why you don't like judgment. It's not because judgment happens. Judgment just tells you what's up. If you were just an awful person, if you had not had sufficient pleasure like the Gentiles do, you you, you almost, your smile should brighten me. The Lord's going to come in and judge my life. I can't wait to present what I've been doing to him. I can't wait. He's going to be so thrilled with what I've been up to. You know, isn't it Jesus who likes drunkenness? Is that the... No, he's not the one who likes drunkenness. The world likes drunkenness, so verse 4, they are surprised that you do not now join them in the same wild profligacy, which is a great verse because you get to use the word profligacy. Memorize it with profligacy in it. Don't get the NASB or something else that says something wild behavior. Profligacy is good as a word because it makes profligates. They're surprised because the whole world thinks this. You came out of the chute. Rosalie just got here. And Rosalie is figuring out whether or not she likes pleasure and hates pain. And I think she's going to decide, just like all of us, I like the pleasurable and I hate the painful. And the rest of her life, until the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and corrects her, she's going to try to add up, demand, scream until she gets it, the pleasures that she has decided she should have. And that's how that's all, all of us were trained that way. Some of us went to college that way. Some of us you know, joined a sorority or a frat because we were those kind of people. And we wanted to look, what's the best living circumstances? Not the big house, that's not fun. Let's, uh, the dorms are too, they just don't really provide fun on a level of schedule that I want. What I deserve, what I demand. I'm gonna be in a frat. I could lie drunk in my own vomit for a whole weekend. And they're surprised that you don't want to be that way. Now, here's the situation. I'm telling you that you are to be armed with this thought. You are to be armed that even torture will not turn you aside from the will of God. You are not living by your own passions. That's what you were judged and found. God, Jesus Christ found out about you in this situation. What you found out about yourselves and the world is looking at you like you're some sort of alien. And they abuse you for choosing the good. Notice that? They not only approve of those who do these things, they abuse those who don't do these things. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. All judgment has been given to the Son, says in John chapter 5, I think. All judgment. Jesus Christ, humble but God, even his judgments are there as a service to your improvement. His participation in the worst possible persecution was a judgment on him or of him. You might look at it this way, that persecution in any situation, is a measure of who you are. What kind of person 
Did you react like when what was assumed to be your rights and your goods and your circumstance and your family and your physical sense of well-being was potentially or actually taken away? What did you do? Did you revile when reviled? Or did you not like Jesus Christ? You have to be ready to accept everything about the Christian motif. Christianity is not designed by Thomas Jefferson. Christianity is not designed as a constitutional expression. It's designed as holiness. And so we have to be ready in any circumstance. If you didn't live in the American freedoms, which I like, I appreciate, I'm glad they have them, but all of human history didn't have these freedoms. They are not inalienable rights. They didn't exist in other times in other countries. There are parts of the world where they still don't exist. And Christians are supposed to be in every one of those situations. And you don't get, to get, any, you don't get anywhere by going, but I have my rights. You don't have any rights. You have the possibility of your heart being judged by wicked men passing a judgment on you or putting you in a situation where a judgment is made. But whatever the case, everyone needs to be judged. Everyone needs to find out whether or not they're pursuers of their own passions or they're the pursuers of the will of God. And to that end, God judges all of them. And God is very driven by this. Because he says next, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead. And this is where we lose our marbles. Because what happens? It happened just the other night. Well, what takes tonight? Friday night, we had wine, wisdom, and song. Good bunch, great discussion. Where do angel babies come from? That was one of the topics. But, but there are passages that will do this, do a number on you. And because it doesn't agree with your, you might little, uh, secular materialist cosmology, something comes up that doesn't fit Sunday school uh, understandings. Why the gospel was preached even to the dead. And we get sidetracked by the cosmological question. We get sidetracked by, you mean someone got a second chance? First off, notice that Peter's not talking about informing you of weirdness in the cosmology. He's not talking about informing you of something that violated your doctrinal pickup from a Southern Baptist Sunday School. This is the beginning of Christianity. Nobody had any problems with this, cosmologically. He's talking about Jesus Christ descending into Hades, which was addressed in the previous chapter. You remember it? I have the verse here in 1 Peter 3 on the side. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And you stop and you go, it's getting even weirder. Because he says in chapter 4, it was the gospel he preached. To the dead, a particular set of dead who died before the flood or who were living before the flood. We don't know who it was. We don't know why that subset. 
But it happened. We get all involved, because I'm like you, I, I'm intrigued by the problem, intrigued by what that's saying about the afterlife of Jesus Christ and the gospel, but Peter doesn't have it on the page here for that purpose. For this very reason, for this is why the gospel was preached. To a certain group of people, I don't, can't say with any authority who that is, a group of things, spirits, that had been judged in the flesh like men, they would have the opportunity to live in the spirit like God. So once again, the judgment of God has come into the world to offer freely or offer an assessment, a measure, where, where it is you're going, what you can choose to do. You're either going to choose yourself, these spirits in prison had chosen themselves, and for some reason God was going to give them, in particular, a second chance, or a first chance, because they had been judged to the flesh like men, and they had a chance to live in the spirit like God. I don't know if any of them came up on it. I don't know if any of these spirits in bondage heard this and responded positively. But Christ was there to give the, the opportunity. Judgment, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus Christ went to the dead and he preached to them the gospel. So they would have the possibility of living in the spirit like God. Well, there's a lot of things that are unexplained, but if your mind is going, I want to know who these spirits in bondage are, save it. Get this worked out about the Lord's judgment first. Because that's why it's on the page. Some people have a very negative view of Jesus Christ, or a negative view of Christianity, you know, the whole buzzkill thing, because they view the judgment. What was that that God said to... Cain, Cain's foaming at the mouth, and the Lord says to Cain, if you do right, will you not be accepted? And so he kills his brother. Because the judgment really has an opportunity for you. Someone smacking you in the face is an opportunity for you. And if you choose, I'm going to be an American, I'm going to be a man, and your thought doesn't go to automatically, but the Lord's will is that I turn the other cheek. Well, I'm going to be an American, I'm going to be a man. Choose which day you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose, are you going to live by the will of God? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, keep sane and sober for your prayers. And once again, we look at the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. I don't know if you, whatever your view of Petri and authorship, you're pretty well convinced this was written in the first century. And Peter is going, and a lot of theologians have trouble with this. Well, it seems that the apostles expected the imminent return of the Lord. And yes, they're right, they did. And I think, whatever the case, they were right, and the modern theologian is wrong. But that that being measured, we get caught up in how a verse touches us in a secondary category. 
and not the actual advice that Evan went to the trouble of putting in bold. Therefore, keep sane and sober. <laughs> if you didn't want a sobering will of God religion, if you wanted one that was all about your passions, there are religions that are all about your passions. All about feeding what you want at the level you want it. Christianity is not that religion. We're to keep sane, that means reasonable, not your mind running off with you. What's it say when Colossians, I think I have the verse down here, Colossians 2. Colossians. You ever want to get those little thumb tabs on the edge of your Bible? We can just sort of, it's probably cheating. 2.18 Let no one disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels. Which is a warning. We've just been covering something that intrigued us about angels. Because he might have been talking about angelic behavior there before the flood. Why that? Why this? Why that? People get caught up with angels. You can have a TV show about angels. Isn't it? Something by an angel. Touched by an angel. What is that, women? Do women watch that show? Not men. It went on for a number of seasons, from what I understand, and I believe it didn't look like a Renaissance angel. Wasn't it a black woman? Which is fine. Worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. You're to be sane, not insane as Christians. That's what Christianity, that's what, because the insane kind of Christianity is trying to design a Christianity that still features your pleasure. You, you could be sitting in the pew right now and say, it's a pew, it's a wooden pew, it hurts my butt. Why do I come to this church? The heat's not even turned on. And there's no one with, you know, a head mic and a guitar. And I've got to read the notes on this page of the dead old white guys that wrote this stuff. And they're doing nothing for me. What are they doing for me as a young person? There's a guy with a man bun. What's he doing here? Aren't they supposed to be all about... No, well, we make sure that none of your needs are met. The coffee is marginal. You're getting better. Thank you, Paul. We're not here to live that way. We're here to be sane and sober in our prayers. What, what, what is your Christian life designed like? This is what we're finding out in the judgment. Are you living by the will of God? Oh, here's some will of God stuff. Verse 8. Above all, hold unfailing love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. You've probably visited families, maybe even live in a family that with, wish there was more love here because none of the sins are covered. Just the fighting, the, ant the antipathy, the viciousness that you've run across in some situations. In the body of Christ, love is supposed to cover an awful lot of the mistakes we make because we do make mistakes. When I make a mistake up here, because 
I will. I hope you have enough love that will cover for me. Practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another. Think of the things that argue against me doing the right thing here. Love covering, ungrudging, as each has received a gift, employ it for one another. But if you're a person driven by your passions, you're trying to get everything going in your life to minister to you. And this is why some of the hospitality is grudging. Because this is not working out for my schedule. And I don't know if I can afford this. Or I don't know if I want to stay up that late. I don't know if I like this person. And yet all those marginal people that love did not extend to, that you did not cover their multitude of sins toward you. We're supposed to be employing our lives for one another because the distinction between, remember, this is Christ's humility. Christ knew he was better than you. And he died for you. That's humility. You can have decided you're the best looking, smartest person in the room. Now, employ it for one another. If you're giving yourself to another, if their condition, if their sinfulness, if their failure to be as near as cool doesn't stop you from employing what you are for them, then you are humble. Because this is the mind we should have in Christ. This is the armament that we have as Christians, that we know God has made us sons of God by adoption, brothers of Christ, sisters of Christ. We are being carried on to glory, and if they kill us now, we're there early. We are the best thing that has happened to the world. That's it. We are the best thing that has happened to the world. And if that was conceit, it'd be awful. But if it's an opportunity to employ it for one another, whatever you've been given, we've all been given love, we've all been given hospitality to give to others, but then you have different things that you have as unique to you. Whatever, whatever gift, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who utters oracles of God. Now, I heard this interpreted once, and I'm a pastor, and I would, I would sure like it if this were true. Um, who wanted the congregation to listen to the pastor as if he was saying the oracles of God. That's backwards. If you were to sit there and go, everything that tumbled from Evan's lips were oracles of God. That's kind of a cult, you know, that's kind of icky. You're supposed to make better judgments than that. And this is not to the congregation. This is to the guy who speaks. He is supposed to be restrained because when he gets up in this, this pulpit and speaks from the word of God, he's one who is trying to let you know what God wants of you. He should be restrained in what he says. Because you're touching on the word of God, I think I've told you that story about my dad with Alex Aronis, who was his bodybuilder roommate in the Navy and ended up being a minister later on. And, and dad went to hear him preach in Southern California. And, and um, Alex at one point said, uh, 
as the scripture says, and then quoted my father. And dad was just, oh. went over to him afterwards, um, said, Alex, this is, the Bible doesn't say that, I said that. He said, Jim, back then, I didn't know where the scripture stopped and you started. Which is a corrective. You know, you, you, you have to say, when I'm uttering, I should feel the restraint. Anyone who speaks should feel the restraining influence of knowing that they're tr treating the oracles of God. Whoever renders service is one who renders it by the strength which God supplies. And he gives us two categories. Everybody can love. Everyone can show hospitality. Some people have one job, some another. He like takes you know, the, the upfront mouthpiece. You should be restrained. If you're in service to the church, use all your strength to do it. Because what gets in the way of you doing that? What gets in the way of a pastor knowing he should be restrained about what he's saying? Well, because one of the key temptations in pastors is their own self-glorification. And this is why I allowed the button up here on the top to fall off. It's right there. It's in my pocket. This is, this is my humility. I'm showing a, a button missing. What, what, you, know, you know pastors. You know what it... Think of this. I mean, think of this. This is the smallest you can get and still really be a functional church. And yet, it's like chocolate. It's so good. I get to talk for 40 minutes. And you get to sit there and listen to me talk for 40 minutes. You know how important that is. And Peter says, Evan, do you know how important that is? Because once we step aside from God's will, the oracles of God, I've stepped into my will. All my weird ideas. My fame, my glory, even if my glory is only 60, 70 people on a Sunday morning. It's still my passions being answered in the church. Service, somebody who has service. Uh, what are the, what's the worst thing about serving in the church? No one ever thanks you, really. They just ask you to do it again. Or expect that you do it again. You gotta, you gotta, if you're not thanking people, you should be conscious of thanking people. I mean, Paul does make the coffee every Sunday, and, and uh, Brian takes care of the finances of the church and the physical needs, and sometimes various people shovel walks or mow the lawns, and you should be conscious of those things. But in service... You should be rendering it by the strength which God supplies, not by the reward you receive to your little ego that I'm not being thanked, so I'm getting out of here. Because if we learn to arm ourselves with the same thought, all that we give is to the glory of God in Christ. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's why we do it. You've got to examine motivation. There's an inertial force to what you do. Everything has one. You're either doing it because of your passions, or because of habit, or because it's right to do. So, beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You should be thankful that you're being proved in any situation. You might not be chained to a stake and whipped or crucified. You might just have no one thank you for your service. Are you ready to not live by your own passions, but by the will of God? This is the proof. And in that we're tested by our sufferings, we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It all works out. You, you give things up, you lose things, you sacrifice things, all for the sake of God's kingdom. Knowing that God is not someone who just denies the good because he rewards you with the good in the end. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just being reproached. What did they say in Acts when they got beaten by the Sanhedrin? They went back and they glorified God. They were worthy to suffer for the name. Are you that set apart from your joys that you can suffer for the name? Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Hmm. Let's, not, let's not have your persecution being added up here because, well, I did murder that guy. Or a thief or a wrongdoer, or a mischief-maker. <laughs> Once again, we, we, just like in the previous list, we go, hey, I'm not an idolater. Oh, you're not a murderer, or a thief, or a wrongdoer. Mischief-maker, I have the definition here on the side, one who takes the supervision of affairs pertaining to others, and in no wise to himself. To meddle in other men's affairs. That's what mischief makers do. They step into other people's business. In the Thessalonians passage, I always like to refer to, mind your own affairs. Mind your own business. You have a God to please. You are being proved. If I'm out there being a busybody, being a mischief maker, turning people against one another, anything I suffer then is well deserved. We are reproached for the name of Christ. That's what it should be. But if one suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but under that name, let him glorify God. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. A lot of people have struggled with that verse because they jump right in because they, they have this helicopter approach to the scripture. They go in and they read a verse. But if you got to this point and you saw that judgment is a proving judgment, it's a measuring judgment. When you judge something, you decide whether it's good or bad, not just how bad it is. And the judgment begins with the household of God. We're the first ones. We have walked, you might say, walked the aisle and say, take me, I am a Christian. We have stepped forward and said, we're the ones who, first of all, should be looked at to see whether or not they live by the will of God or by their own passions. 
We ask the basic decision in human history, and the people that at least claim to be serving the will of God need to be judged first. And it says, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous man is scarcely saved, where will the impious and sinner appear? This is the ultimate question. Everyone faces it. Heck, spirits in bondage faced it. Jesus Christ said, everyone's got to face this. There are people in Hades that I've got to go see because they've got to face this. Everyone has got to face this. Do you live by the will of God or do you live by your passions? Do you serve yourself because your passions mean so much to you and your pain and pleasure inventory is everything? And you can't set that aside to serve the living God. You're going to be judged, and you're going to be judged first. We're the first on the line. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Do you live by the will of God? Is Jesus Lord? That's what it comes down to. When the Lord says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When anyone confessed Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Do you have that confession worked out and judged in you? Where you know you faced unpleasantness for the kingdom and you responded correctly. And you look to Christ for your example. And in our regular lives together, we practice the example of not living to our own passions, but granting our gifts and benefits to others. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Even if the worst happened, it's a measure of the good that's happened in you. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful that you've worked out this good in us. We'd ask that you would give us sensibility and the right responses to what we discover in ourselves. We want to be faithful to you when called upon. Thank you for the presence that each of the people here have in each of the people here's lives. We give ourselves in humility one to another, love and joy in it. In your son's name, amen.